Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We're recording this on uh, Monday, June 17th, and it was two weeks ago at the Worldwide Developers Conference that they released the first beta for Catalina, Mac OS 10.15. And Kirk and I are in the developer program, so we got it because we were very anxious to see what the new media apps look like. And so a couple of Tuesdays ago, we were going over the, the apps and looking at what the music app does and what the podcast app does and what the Apple TV app does. And while we were messing around with this stuff, Kirk casually mentions, you know, It'd be great if all three of these apps were combined into one app. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. You've got to be careful what you wish for. And people have been wishing for the breakup of iTunes since, I don't know, the Renaissance, it seems. <laughs> yeah, I think Leonardo da Vinci had a, a painting about that. He had a drawing of one, at least a, a prototype yes. that I don't think was ever yes. built. Or well, flew. actually, I saw it. At the end of Leonardo da Vinci's life, he lived in a town called Amboise, which is on the, the Loire River in, in France. And I used to live in Tours near there. And we went to see his workshop, and they had a bunch of his models that had been built after his drawings. And one of them was the proper iTunes model. Anyway, I'm digressing. As listeners can tell from the title of this episode, Flogging a Dead App, Is It Really the Death of iTunes? We are putting a question mark there because all over the Internet, people were saying iTunes is dead and Apple's discontinued iTunes. It's the end of an era with the violins and everything. But it's not dead. It's really not. Now, at the risk of repeating ourselves, we did discuss this in episode number 136, Breaking Up with iTunes, where we kind of gave our ideas of what we would like to see as the iTunes split, which is pretty much what happened. So I think Tim Cook was listening <laughs> to that episode when they were making their final choices. Then episode 145, we did the future of iTunes Redux, looking at it again. And then in episode 149, we did an episode in which we discussed the potential breakup of iTunes yet again because we really didn't have anything else to talk about this week. So we're up to 142. So the first time there was nine episodes between the two, then there was four, and then there was three. <laughs> but I promise this will be the last one about the future of iTunes, at least until the next one. Yeah, at least until the next one. I'm sure when, when the official release is out, we'll have something more to say. The reason we wanted to talk about this stuff today is because we're both getting a lot of email. A lot. From people who are very concerned about how to do things. Worried. Angst-ridden <laughs> people. There has to be a German word about the angst you get when iTunes is about to be broken up and you're worried about the music library, media library that you've built up over 20 years. Maybe. I think everyone should just calm down. There there won't be any problems. Yeah, won't be any problems. We'll, we'll walk through it. But I think your point is that people shouldn't worry. They shouldn't self-medicate, except, you know, a good single malt while you're listening to Bob Dylan is always worth doing. Sure. Essentially, as Doug said, and as we said in our previous episodes, predicting this is split up into three apps. There's one for music, one for podcasts, and one for TV. Audiobooks, if you're an audiobook fan and have an audiobook library, your books are now in the Books app, the same as they are on iOS. It's not a big change, but... You don't get the same access to metadata. You can't make playlists in the Books app. And while I know some people do actually make playlists for audiobooks in order to sync to their devices, and that's not something you're going to be able to do, I haven't tried the new audiobooks app myself. You can still sync, of course, to your iOS device if you sync directly from your Mac. The syncing will be in the Finder instead of 
in iTunes. And you know, when we talked about this back in the day, back in the day when we talked about this, my thought was, are they if they make all these different apps, are they really going to make another sync app? And I just never thought that they would add to the bloated finder <laughs> the features of syncing iTunes. But you know, it it kind of feels okay being in the finder, kind of like the way it used to be. Remember, remember iSync? Well, that was an app that wasn't in the finder. That was a yeah app, but it was it wasn't in iTunes. I, I'm pretty sure that's what I said back in episode whatever. But the idea of having an additional app to me, you know, taking as you said, wouldn't it be nice if these were all in a single app? So audiobooks are different. Syncing is in the Finder. Music is in the Music tab, either your own library or Apple Music, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's almost exactly the same as the way it's presented in iTunes. Podcaster in the Podcast app. I think it's worth highlighting that Podcaster are a little bit different for most people. They don't keep an archive of podcasts. And, and I know I do have some, the, like, the news from Lake Wobegon, I have 400 episodes of that. That's something you can listen to again, but most podcasts are timely, so you're not going to keep them for for so long. So having their own app with, with different conditions from iTunes sort of makes sense. The TV app, of course, is very different. If you have an Apple TV, you already know what it's like. It combines your media libraries you've gotten from iTunes, and it includes all different TV channels and providers and apps that you can get with the Apple TV, and these are going to be available on the Mac. And I find that immensely confusing, the whole TV thing. Uh, yeah, I do. I agree with you. Uh, especially on iOS, I do. But now that it's on the Mac, I find it more so. And to be frank, I don't use the TV and movies because when I want to watch a show, I stream it. I don't really – I haven't bought movies or TV shows in a long time. The only time I use it is when I rent a movie from the iTunes store, but I don't watch it right away, and that's where you have to access it. You could probably still get it through the iTunes store. There's probably a button that says play instead of buy or rent. But I find that often when they have these 99-cent rentals on Tuesday, I'll rent two or three movies and I'll watch them a few weeks later. It's better if it's centralized. But, you know, our show is called The Next Track, so let's talk about the music app, which is really the main 100-pound, 800-pound, I don't know. I don't want to use that cliche, but this is this is the thing we use. So, fortunately, the music app has color in the sidebar. Remember when iTunes had colors that allowed you to easily identify different types of content? It has color again. And that color is actually quite practical because it makes it look like it's not designed by Stalin or his architects. Um, I think it was <laughs> well, iTunes the, 11 where they took the color out. And yeah, it was they really only had depressing. Color, but the color was only in it for a brief amount of time anyway. Well, come on. Yeah. The uh, problem I'm, I'm though- all for color. The problem, though, is that the color is a gradient. So I'll, I'll put a link on my website to an article I wrote on the 6th, and I took some screenshots off of Apple's website. So at the top section, you have Apple Music, you have For You, Browse, and Radio. And then in the library, you have, they're showing by default, recently added artists, albums, and songs. Now, you can edit that to include genres, composers, downloaded music, etc. But the colors don't change according to what's visible. In other words, the colors of each thing stay the same. And it's meant to be a gradient. If all of them are displayed, you have this nice, colorful gradient. But if you only have certain ones, the gradient skips. It's like, it's like you know, going from Roy G. Biv to Roy Biv, you know, <laughs> missing out on a couple of colors. Yeah, I, the details about the color are interesting. I mean, the, the movies app, the movie and TV apps is blue, and the music app is red. So you get this gradient of red colors. Now, on, on iTunes, on uh, Apple's webpage, Talking about the transition 
that you're going to have to deal with. They have screenshots, but they don't look the way the app looks now. For instance, in the music app, they have uh, uh, the playlists have the icons. We, uh, you know, the thing, the, the large icon that you see in the header of a playlist, well, that's what the icon for the playlist is. So you've got a lot of color there, too. But that doesn't exist in the music app yet. Well, it's just a beta. Remember right. that. It's just a beta. It's just a beta. And if anyone out there is using this in beta, remember, it's just a beta. So don't start freaking out. Now, there's one thing that we immediately noticed that's missing, and that's the column browser, which is really the way that I navigate my library. I hope that that's coming back. I'm just repeating the mantra. It's just a beta. It's just a beta. If I, there is a thing that might be a placeholder for a future column browser, and it's called filter. It's not search. It's filter. It appears above the, the list of songs the way column browser would, but it's just a filter. You put in names or uh, of albums or artists or whatever, and those will be filtered from the playlist that you're observing. It's... It's not the same as the column browser. It's it functionally is sort of the equivalent. You can, but you you don't have the analogous uh, look of the browser, where not only do you see what you want to see, you see what you don't want to see. Or the filter may provide an alternate way of seeing things. I don't want it just to show me when I search for Jerry Garcia. I want to see Jerry Garcia and next to it. And if all it does is narrow down to one entry and gives just gives me a list i don't like album view it's too it's not compact enough i want to be able to scan the text find what i'm looking for album view means that if i have 100 records by an artist i have to scroll all the way down when you have that list of albums in the column it makes it easier and a lot of people don't use column view they use album view they search for things you know it depends and that's you know, that's really the only thing i found that's missing as far as i'm concerned yeah, as far as as far as I'm concerned, also the column browser was the only thing. Um, you know, I've, re I've run into a little whoop doesn't do that anymore, but there isn't much of that. Well, Genius wasn't working for me before. I haven't tried it in a few days. Again, this is a server side thing, probably that's not turned on. Uh, I mean, the Genius feature is still there you, in the menus to to start a Genius playlist and all. Smart playlists haven't changed. Everything, the metadata is all the same. Um, the ratings are still there. Yes, but you're going to have to change every single Apple script, aren't you? Um, well, all right. Well, here's well, the thing yeah, about Apple Script. Well, because they're not calling the app called iTunes. They're calling the app called Music. If you know anything about Apple Script, you know that a script will target a specific app. So Apple Scripts that target iTunes say, tell application iTunes to play. So that none of those scripts will run in Catalina because in order to compile it, the app has to be present. Well, there is no iTunes in Catalina, which, if I may insert here, is I think is unusual. I thought for sure that they would keep a legacy version of iTunes around, like they kept QuickTime Player 7 or Aperture around, but they didn't, or at least it's not here. I don't see any reason to use iTunes. I don't see why you'd need a legacy version of iTunes. And I guess these other apps work well enough, so they decided not to include it. So that's fine with me. Well, is it possible that at some point an Apple script that calls iTunes is going to redirect to the music app? Well, no, it couldn't because it could be calling music or podcasts or videos, and it wouldn't know. The two apps that are scriptable are music and Apple TV. And you, yeah. can, you can target those. So, yes scripts are going to have to be rewritten. It's not a big deal. In fact, it's actually given me an opportunity to kind of do some retooling for my manufacturing of Apple scripts. 
Um, but there is an interesting thing. It's like the scripting definitions for both of these apps are virtually identical. It's just which one can you target? There are also differences with what files you're working with. I don't want to get too technical here, but if you try to add a video file to music, it won't work. So then you try to add it to the TV app, and that works. So there are ways of getting around it. Yet the music app manages music videos, right. at least from Apple Music. So there has to be a way to get a video that you've got, that you've ripped, to be able to go into the music app at some point, since it's music videos. Now, it's worth pointing out that anyone who doesn't upload to Catalina will still be using iTunes. The iTunes Store is, is still called the iTunes Store. All these people were writing articles about how the iTunes brand is dead. And, you know, don't forget, 90% of iTunes users are on Windows and nothing's changing for them. So the whole thing about iTunes is dead is... Can you give me a sad trombone effect there, Doug? I think it's just people are so resentful about iTunes. They just want to get rid of it. Well, in some ways, all Apple had to do was just move things into a couple different apps and change the name, and they've satisfied all these people who've been complaining for, you know, a decade about iTunes. Well, they'll find out. They'll find out how it's kind of a little different. <laughs> um, there were, we also predicted in some of these uh, earlier episodes about iTunes, about the breakup of iTunes, that there would be marzipan, or actually, they're not calling it marzipan. What is it called? Catalyst. Catalyst. It looks like the podcast app is Catalyst, but the music and the Apple TV apps are definitely AppKit macOS apps. They are, you know, written for the Mac. They're not some kind of, um, I don't know, what do you, I don't know what to call Catalyst because I just don't know enough about it yet, but. It's a kind of emulation. Yeah, it's, it's a kind yeah. of translation of a, of a simpler, it's got limitations like no multiple windows. And, and, and that's probably the reason because you do need multiple windows in iTunes. You need an info window. Sure. At a minimum. Yep. Preferences, mini player, so, things like that. So they're all. Yes, of course, the mini player. Yeah. So all yeah. that stuff is there. And does the movie app have a mini player? No, I guess not. It would have a, a no, full screen. It, it, well, it could be a window or full screen yeah. the way it currently right. is in iTunes. So. Well, I don't think there's a whole lot more to say, is there? I mean, well, not we, until not until they this... release a the qualified version uh, the, the, as a beta. It's you, we could sit here all day and guess what's going to be added or taken. Well, away. no, but I think uh, we, we agreed we weren't going to originally do this episode, but we agreed that given that we've talked about it so much, it would be good to help reassure our listeners who are worried about the integrity of their libraries. Your music library is going to remain there. It's going to just be some of the naming is going to be different. Some of the folders are going to be different. Where your media is is uh, stored. They have removed the automatic saving of an XML file, and I initially thought this would be a big problem for you, but it's not. No, um, they've been phasing they've been phasing out the legacy iTunes library XML for a couple of years now. There is a framework that's available to developers called IT Library, which gives you all the information that the XML would. It's just it's a little cumbersome for developers to use. It was easy just to look at the XML grab it, look at it, do whatever you need to do with it. But with this, it's an actual framework. You have to, well, you have to do stuff with it. <laughs> you have to actually work with it. <laughs> um, it's fine for developers, for Apple Script users. You can't use it unless you're a developer because you need to code sign any app that uses this IT library. So it's not for everybody. Um, but on the other hand, if you're a developer and you want to make these things, then you're cool with it. But the average user doesn't need to do it if all they want to do is automate some simple 
you know, metadata changes and that kind of thing. But I like to have access to everything that's on the system, and the, this framework does a nice job. And I had mentioned to you also about the fact that the XML file can help you rebuild a library that's gotten damaged if the library file is corrupted. Now, you can export an XML file from the file menu, library submenu, I think it's save as XML. And I suggested to you that you create something that does that once a day, if possible, because it isn't a bad idea to have that if you have a because sometimes an iTunes library can be corrupted in a weird way. Years ago, when I was writing, was it a book about, maybe it was one of my Take Control of iTunes books, I couldn't get Genius playlists to work. They just wouldn't work. And I ended up getting in touch with an iTunes engineer at Apple. And he said, all right, let's try something. What if you um, take the XML file and load your library from that, rebuild your library from the XML file? And that fixed it. Even though there was nothing wrong in my library that I could see, all my information was displaying in iTunes. So there's some jiggery-pokery that goes on in the ITL, the iTunes library file, and it's better to have that kind of naked XML file as a backup. Especially, again, if, like us, you've got a library you've been building since, you know, 2001. Yeah, you may have to uh, manually export the XML file. I don't have high hopes that they will restore the automatic exporting of the XML file. Okay, well, I got nothing else to say about this. We, we're not going to try and fill a half hour with this, are we? Uh, no. I'm, I, in a nutshell, your experience with these new apps is going to be about the same <laughs> as it was with iTunes. Okay. I've got an extract pick, and I bet you can already guess what it is. Uh, nope, I can't. Oh. Well, when you tell me, though, I'll say, oh, I would. I should. Yes, there's this thing on Netflix. Oh, yes. Oh, have you watched it yet? Not yet. No, I keep meaning okay. to. I've been having my head in the developer tent. Okay, so Rolling Thunder Review, this documentary by Martin Scorsese, it's about Bob Dylan, the Rolling Thunder Review tour that he did in late 75. It was the first part of a two-part tour. He got a bunch of musicians together, kind of like a gypsy caravan, and they did like 30 shows. I have to say, this is one of the best music documentaries I've ever seen. However... I would strongly recommend you don't read any articles about it until you've seen it because there are things in it that I did not know that I know now have, having read articles about it. I think you should watch it today, Doug, so you're not spoiled because there's some stuff. Anyway, what's really interesting is that there was a lot of footage filmed for this tour. There's f uh, footage of rehearsals. There's footage in Gerd's Folk City in the village where Dylan is there with a bunch of friends with Patti Smith and... Bette Midler is there and a whole bunch of friends and they're just singing on the little stage. There's footage in a rehearsal room in New York. And then there's footage of them traveling where Dylan seemed to spend a lot of time driving a Winnebago. Maybe he just didn't, didn't want to interact with the people. And performing in these very odd places. Some of them were two, 3,000 seat halls. Some of them were larger. One, there's one in a Mahjong club where a bunch of old ladies are playing Mahjong where Allen Ginsberg recites poetry and then Dylan plays one of the songs from um, Blood on the Tracks on a, an out-of-tune piano. It's actually quite interesting. But what you get out of this is the, how can I say, the energy of this real-life situation where these people were touring together. It wasn't just a band. It was a whole bunch of musicians. These concerts lasted three or four hours with Dylan coming on for the last hour and a half. There was Roger McGuinn. There was Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Bob Newworth. Joan Baez was singing with Bob the whole time, and then a couple people came and went. Joni Mitchell came at the end, and my God, this shot of Joni Mitchell in Gordon Lightfoot's apartment singing a song, like, for the first time 
to these people is like worth the cost of entry to get in. Dylan's really angry when he sings some of these songs. He does Hattie Carroll. He does Hurricane. He's angry. He's he's spitting out. He's got energy. It's really an interesting way to see Dylan. And lots of close-ups, lots of really intimate shots. Scarlett Rivera, the woman who plays violin, it's amazing to see how much she made those songs. These are the songs from Desire that they were playing. Desire hadn't yet been released when this tour was on. And they were doing things like Sarah, One More Cup of Coffee, Romance in Durango, and Hurricane. And she was there, and she, her sound really lends a lot to the song. But don't read articles about this before you see it. About two hours, 20 minutes long. There's about 10 minutes of credits. Maybe I'll watch the credits first. <laughs> yeah, the credits are really long. It's amazing how many people are involved. But uh, seriously, we did a thing about music documentaries some time ago. And if we were to redo that, this would be one of my choices. Now, of course, I can have another next track pick about this next week because there's the 14 CD box set. But we'll talk about that on the next episode. So we just assume that that's going to be your next track pick next Well, time. it's obvious. Well, good. I'll look forward to that. As I've mentioned a number of times, I, I worked at an alternative station in the 90s. And the, the interesting thing about the alternative period, at least this first wave in the 90s of alternative music, is that anybody who sounded like Nirvana or Pearl Jam or had that light, heavy grunge sound got a record contract. And I, there, were, there was tons of new music during this alternative period. And one of the bands that I, I liked was a band called Toadies or The Toadies. They had uh, one hit that I was aware of called uh, Possum Kingdom, which used to be requested as Play That So Help Me Jesus song. That's the lyric that's in it that most people could remember because Possum Kingdom, I don't believe, is even mentioned in the, in the song. Well, anyway, I was really fascinated with Toadies. First of all, I had their album, and I listened to it a lot because I used to use music that we didn't play on the radio but was from familiar albums as the music background under bumpers or commercials or things like that because it sounded grungy but you didn't know where it came from. And one of those albums was the Toadies. And the interesting thing about the Toadies is they were grungy but they would do weird things. For instance, the song Possum Kingdom has this 4454 time signature. There's this two-bar riff that they play, and every other time they play it, they add an extra beat. So it's, it's tough to follow if you like to dance. But if you're a guy like me who likes to hear unusual time signatures, it was really kind of cool that they actually had a pop hit with this song that did that. Well, there are a number of other songs on the album that do similar things. Toadies didn't last very long. I think they put out two albums, and they broke up, and then they tried to get together again. But this album, their first album, called Rubberneck, is really, really interesting. And I had it on the other day for the first time in many years, and I was just really surprised at how interesting and loud and grungy and sophisticated it kind of is, unlike a lot of other bands. I mean, I know Soundgarden and bands of that ilk would occasionally play with time signatures, but this band was really tight, and uh, I, I really like it a lot. Toadies and Rubberneck is my next track. This was episode number 152 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to some of the people sitting there on the bus with you today. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.